Hello and welcome to the Talking Indonesia podcast. I'm your host Dave McRae from the University of Melbourne's Asia Institute. The vast number of Indonesian migrant workers working abroad has long been a prominent feature of Indonesia's labour market. Indonesian government policy on migrant workers tends to come into the public spotlight, primarily when cases of maltreatment and abuse towards these workers emerge, not infrequently spurring the government to impose moratoriums on departures to particular countries and regions. For its part, the Jokowi government has voiced an aspiration to halt the departure of domestic workers abroad altogether. But what have been the Indonesian government's longer-term policy objectives surrounding migrant workers, and how has the government sought to manage the flow of its citizens seeking employment overseas? To discuss these issues, I'm joined by Dr. Wayne Palmer, lecturer in the Department of International Relations at Bina Nusantara University, and author of the recent book, Indonesia's Overseas Labour Migration Program, 1969 to 2010. Wayne, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Dave. Could I start by asking you, we often see these figures of five to seven million Indonesians working abroad as migrant workers, often with claims that you know more than half of them are domestic workers, for example. Are those sort of numbers on the mark? And how did there come to be so many Indonesians working abroad. We don't we don't really have an accurate number of Indonesians working overseas. The figure that we see six to seven million. That's actually the number of Indonesians who've been placed in work overseas since the 1990s. The number of Indonesians working overseas might be similar to that figure, but it might be much higher. Is the 1990s when we started to see significant numbers of Indonesians going abroad for work? That's certainly the time when the uh, when the when the Ministry of Manpower started to uh, to task more officials with administering the program. But the flow of migrants had started well before that. The the flow of migrants had definitely started well before that in the seventies and the eighties when uh, when the numbers going under the program were were much smaller. We're talking here about maybe hundreds or even a thousand over just a couple of years. The Indonesians going uh, migrating for work weren't using the government program. They were using other connections to find work overseas. Uh, they might have been using friends and family who were over, already overseas. They might have had contact with, with employers, but it wasn't really until the 1990s that the Indonesian government started to uh, support recruitment agencies to find more opportunities for Indonesians to work overseas. With this flow of migrants that started, as you're saying, well before the government started to involve itself in the 90s, what was motivating Indonesians to go abroad? Was it simply a matter of greater economic opportunities than what they could access within the country? Many migrant workers, if you ask them why they, why, why they left their homes, most of them will tell you that there was an economic motivation. Somehow, um, it wasn't possible to make ends meet at home, and uh, there was an opportunity to work overseas and earn money that would support consumption at home. Sure. And when the Indonesian government began to involve itself in the flow of these markets in the 1990s, what sort of policy objectives did it bring to the table then? Did it, did it see this flow as a positive thing or, or something that it should be seeking to restrict, for instance? It's something that the Indonesian government thought uh, would help its economic development program. So um, the, the government identified that in Indonesia there was, a, there was a mismatch between the, the number of people looking for work and the number of jobs that were available. And one of the ways that they thought that they could get around that was finding work overseas for, uh, for the surplus labour in Indonesia. 
It wasn't planned in the sense that the Indonesian government thought that, okay, there is X number of Indonesians at home, um, we're going to find them X number of jobs overseas. It's more a matter of the Indonesian government noticing that the Indonesians were already going overseas to work and saw that as an activity that they, at, to begin with, they wanted to, uh, to monitor. But as time went on, the Indonesian government, in implementation, uh, started to treat the uh, Indonesian administration of labor migration as as an opportunity to um, to earn money. The opportunities to earn money would come from from their interactions with the recruitment agents who were uh, interacting with the employers overseas and organizing the passports and documents that uh, that these people needed to needed to move. Okay, do you mean an opportunity for? the officials involved to earn money or an opportunity for the government to generate revenue for itself? In implementation, it was an opportunity for the officials. Uh, at the higher level, we, uh, we don't see uh, the Indonesian government seeing the, the migration of Indonesian as an opportunity to, for the government to earn money. Um, it was more a matter of the people who were tasked with doing the various forms of administration, often taking a little bit extra on the side. And I mean, beyond that self-enrichment of the officials involved in administering the flow of migrants abroad, did the government have broader policy objectives? I mean, you said they saw this as a way to deal with employment shortfalls within the country. Were there targets or, or the like of the numbers of migrants that, that the government wanted to see go overseas and efforts on the government's behalf to expand or promote the flow of migrants? The Indonesian government, through the Ministry of Manpower, was definitely interested in finding more high-paying jobs for Indonesians overseas. But in the 90s and in the early 2000s, really the government relied on the private recruitment agents to go out and find these jobs. Um, so while the government could, for example, do some surveys overseas to see where jobs are, what they really relied on was the recruitment agents to go out and and secure these jobs for, for, for Indonesians. So there wasn't, you know, there was nothing of the sort of identifying particular sectors and the government itself taking actions to increase the number of Indonesians working in those sectors abroad or, not, or targeting particular countries? Not much beyond the, uh, the government saying that they would prefer to have formal sector workers, that they would prefer to have fewer informal sector workers, that ideally they would like um, Indonesians to work in offices rather than um, Indonesians to work cleaning people's kitchens. These are more sort of more sort of aspirations but it wasn't the Indonesian government that was that did much to define the jobs overseas. And the Indonesian government would document and take count of the number of Indonesians going. But the, the kinds of jobs that were offered to Indonesians at home were the jobs that the recruitment agencies found overseas. Okay, so would it be fair to say, at least in the 90s, that the Indonesian government wasn't a large part of the experience for migrant workers heading abroad? Definitely, yes. Okay, sure, sure. And you mentioned one of the key things the government started to do was actually to document the numbers of people going abroad. Do we see clear trends uh, in where Indonesians were heading and the, the number of people who were departing? From the, the late 1980s into the 1990s, Indonesian government statistics say that more Indonesians were migrating to the Asia-Pacific, um, Malaysia, Singapore. But it was more that the Indonesian government had just started taking count of the number of Indonesians going to these countries for work, rather than um, Indonesians had just started moving there for work. The migration to, uh, to Malaysia and Singapore 
traditionally happened much more outside documented means. So um, Indonesians would go outside immigration checkpoints, they wouldn't always have passports. And the Indonesian government at the time was much more concerned about being aware of, of people going to, to the Middle East for work. And why was that? It was mainly because the recruitment agents at the time um, were focused on finding work for Indonesians in, um, in, in the Middle East. Uh, recruitment agents at the time weren't very interested in brokering work for, for people in, in Malaysia. It wasn't really until the late 1980s and the 1990s that the, that the recruitment agents started to report that they were finding work for, for people in, in Malaysia and Singapore. Sure, sure. What about flows of migrants abroad in terms of numbers? Have they been fairly constant over time or do we see stark changes from, from year to year? As far as the government's concerned, the numbers have fluctuated quite a lot. Um, so we'll see in the 1980s, the, the numbers going from sort of thousands into tens of thousands, the 1990s, tens of thousands, to hundreds of thousands. We see a sort of 19, 1997, 1998, around the time of the Asian financial crisis, um, we see many more Indonesians leaving the country for work. Um, we see uh, the numbers go up to sort of 400, 500,000 sort of from 2008, 2010. That's mainly because the numbers had, in, had, had steadily increased and the number of Indonesians leaving was, was maintained at that level. Then we see that the numbers start, that the numbers start to drop from sort of 2011 onwards, definitely from after 2015, after the Indonesian government imposed bans on, on Indonesian labor migration to the, to the Middle East. So these are fluctuations in government numbers, but they may not accurately reflect actual fluctuations in, in the flow of migrants. Certainly. I think the government numbers need to be definitely need to be taken with a grain of salt. I've been sitting in offices where, uh, where people will tell me that uh, the power went out, so they, they lost the, the exact number of migrant workers who'd, who left the country for the last two months. And so they approximated the number based on the, num the number that, it, that left a few months beforehand compared them to the, to the year before. And of course, as you say, there's also a significant number of people who are leaving simply without telling the government that they're going. That's right, yeah. You mentioned the 97-98 financial crisis was something that spurred a much greater number of Indonesians to go abroad. Um, it, it also, of course, greatly contributed to the fall of the authoritarian Suharto regime. Did we see a change in policy objectives or the nature of the involvement of the Indonesian government in the flow of Indonesians abroad as a result of democratization? The transition government wanted to do a lot to change how things were done in the, in the program. So I wanted to expand protections for Indonesian workers, wanted to do things like reduce the, the amount that Indonesians would pay recruitment agents for jobs overseas, wanted to change um, how they repaid their fees, so limited to um, to the equivalent of one month's wages, whereas most people actually paid something like seven or eight months. But the problem at the time was that there was this, from within the government, there was a will to change things, but outside there was an increasing demand for the Indonesians to leave under the existing program. So the government at the time struggled a little bit to, to implement change because by implementing change it would mean upsetting a lot of the recruitment agents that were finding the work for Indonesians overseas. And the recruitment agents were, were doing this work because it was so profitable. Uh, we had an increase in, demand, increase in the number of Indonesians who wanted to work overseas 
even though uh, they knew that they would, they would pay a lot for, for those positions. Sure. So there was a desire to change things, but because prospective migrant workers saw the potential for large profits, recruiters were making large profits, essentially everyone wanted the government to get out of their way. It was more the case of um, the government, not the people who were in control at the time, not feeling they could they could do much to change the status quo because it was the status quo that the agents wanted to do their work and was working in a way to find jobs for, for Indonesians to work overseas. And I mean, does that mean that the government is more or less regulating migrant workers in the same way now as what was happening in the authoritarian era or as that moment of transition passed, have we started to see changes in the way that the government deals with migrant workers? So the, the process hasn't changed much at all since the, since the 1990s. What has changed is a lot of the procedures are followed now. Whereas for a very long time, Indonesians were required to undergo training uh, to work overseas in jobs like, like domestic workers. For a long time, it was actually just a formality. So they would get a certificate saying that they had undergone the training and that they had the necessary skills, but they hadn't actually done it. What we see now, though, is that the training is, is happening. And so the issue is not necessarily that they are not getting the training now, but there is a conversation about the quality of the training. Do we see big differences under democratisation between successive governments in their attitude to the flow of migrant workers abroad or the interventions that they attempt? Successive governments in the democratic area, they want the same things that governments before it set. So they, they want large numbers of workers in the formal sector. They want fewer numbers of Indonesians who are crossing borders for work as domestic workers. The key difference between the two is that the governments in the democratic area, are, there is more pressure that's being put on them to make that happen. Governments in, in the 1990s, for example, would say things that would be pleasing to people. Um, so they would identify, for example, that it's, it's more likely that, that an Indonesian migrant worker will be abused if they're working in a job where there is low protection overseas. So um, one way to avoid that is to reduce the number of Indonesians working in those jobs. And it wouldn't go much beyond that. But what we see with the governments today is that they will say that they want to um, reduce the number of Indonesians working in, in risky jobs overseas. But that will also be followed up with a, with a, with a commitment to encourage recruitment agents to find job and alternative jobs overseas. Okay, so what sort of things have we seen the government do to put pressure on recruitment agents to, to find different jobs? By imposing bans on the placement of, of Indonesian migrant workers to certain countries. And the Middle East is an, is an entire region where one of those bans has been imposed. That's largely because most of the workers going to that region were going to work as domestic workers. And so by closing off those, um, those countries, it meant that their recruitment agents, if they wanted to stay in the business, needed to look for um, alternative jobs. And the alternative jobs are in sectors where, where migrant workers get more protection. How effective have those sorts of bans been? Have, have they actually succeeded in preventing the flow of domestic workers, say, to the Middle East? It's definitely reduced the number of domestic workers who go under the state program. It's now not possible for agents to say that they found a job for a domestic worker overseas and they want to recruit people in Indonesia for those jobs. It doesn't mean that Indonesians aren't going there for work. The same agents um, are finding jobs um, overseas, are helping to organise the employment visas that they need. But the scale is definitely lower. When 
recruiting agencies are doing this, are they breaking the law or does this reflect that the government actually doesn't have the power to impose a ban or moratorium on Indonesians working as migrant workers in other countries? Well, if recruitment agents in Indonesia um, are caught, there's an offence for illegal recruitment. Recruiting for a job that's not um, that's not approved by the Indonesian government is something that they can be arrested for. Agencies and their employees can be punished. But at the same time, it's very easy to avoid government detection. So it would just be a matter of, for example, not reporting to, to government that the government agents that you would normally report to in Indonesia. It would be a matter of at the border, not alerting the immigration officials that you're you're going to Saudi Arabia to work. And of course, that be, that that becomes more difficult when there's an employment visa in in your passport. But usually. If migrant workers are already at the border with a, with a passport and a, and a visa ready to go, immigration, the, um, much more now than before, there's more of a policy to let them out of the country rather than complicate things and stop them from going. And I guess on the subject of bans, we've also seen, I believe, the Jokowi government announced that it plans to halt the flow of domestic workers to any countries. Could you tell us what the origins of that ban where and whether we've seen any steps to, to implement it? Sure, talk about, about the, the zero number of domestic workers in 2017. Started in at the end of 2014, so 2015, when the Indonesian government launched its roadmap for migration. It's where they plan sort of over the next, the next five years um, what their objectives would be. So what they decided that they, they wanted to do was significantly reduce the number of Indonesians recruited for informal sector jobs. And one of these jobs was in, in domestic employment as domestic workers. But in actual fact, the ban will probably stop recruitment for domestic work in certain countries, not all countries. We will still see Indonesians going to Hong Kong and Singapore for, for domestic work. And one of the reasons why we'll see that is because the, the protections that are provided to them under, under labour law are as strong as um, would be provided to, to workers in other sectors. When the government does announce these bans, either to particular regions or for particular categories of workers, does it affect the willingness of Indonesians to, to work in those countries or sectors abroad, do you think? Or, or do we not see really any discernible impact? Usually there's a, there's a significant lag between when everybody's aware of poor conditions in a country, for example, where there's a high rate of abuse and a government ban. Usually the um, migrant workers themselves will be aware of the conditions before they go by talking to their neighbours, by talking to other people who've returned, having friends who are working overseas. Um, the government ban will usually be in response to an event. So in Saudi Arabia, it would be the, the execution of a, of a migrant worker. The Indonesian government will um, often be aware of um, these cases for a very long time, but it's the reporting of the events that pushes the government's hand. Okay, so uh, these bans don't send a signal because in practice, everyone already knew it was dangerous to work in those countries or occupations long before the government moved to, to impose a restriction. The ban does mean that it's much less possible Mm. to go to those countries for work. So the recruitment agencies in Indonesia, it's their job to do all of the paperwork to make the movement possible. And once it's not possible for those agencies to operate on the same scale, then it's much less of an option um, to go to those countries for work. There, there is definitely talk about the government not being sensitive to the needs of the of people living in Indonesia. So 
if, if people, for example, they're aware of the poor conditions overseas, but they migrate anyway, it's a calculation that they've made. And it's usually because the prospect of earning income to send back to Indonesia, that sort of trumps considerations about whether they'll, whether they'll be safe or they'll enjoy the time that they, they spend working overseas. When the government imposes bans, and that stops people from uh, being able to more easily access these jobs, there is a strong criticism that the, the government hasn't done enough um, to find these people alternatives at home. But it's more, it's, it's more civil society organizations, NGOs, that will, that will talk about these issues. Apart from these bans on Indonesians working in particular sectors abroad or going to particular countries, we also saw the Megawati government back in 2004 enact a law on migrant workers. What was the background to that law? Was that also an effort to shift Indonesian migrant workers into more skilled, more protected sectors? The bill for that law had actually been tabled for a long time in the legislature. Um, it wasn't really until, like you said, in 2004 that the Megawati government decided that Indonesia needed that law that year. And the decision to make that happen sort of came on the heels of, of a high-profile high abuse case in, in Malaysia. The abuse... Um, at the time, there was quite a lot of victim of blaming that, that we could see in the media. There were many people who were saying that what the employer had done was wrong, but the migrant worker was frustrating because she, she couldn't clean the kitchen in the way that the recruitment agent had promised. She couldn't shop in, in the same way that the employer was told that she would be able to. The government at the time thought that by passing the law would be helpful later on to reduce the number of jobs where where, the, where this kind of thing could happen um, like uh, for like in, in domestic work in un, unregulated jobs and I mean that law also brought into being a new agency the National Agency for protection and placement of Indonesian migrant workers or BN p2 TKI how has that changed the landscape uh, for Indonesian migrant workers heading overseas to seek work? For the migrant workers themselves, not much, not much has changed. Sometimes they still wait a very long time before they go. After they leave Indonesia, they've, they've often, it's not that they've forgotten what happened before they left, but it's more important for them to think about um, the relationship that they have with their employer, the sort of challenges that they have in the place of employment. In, in, in Indonesia, the, the creation of this extra agency, it did mean that within the Indonesian government, at least a, a conversation was happening about how things were done. So when the law was passed in 2004, a lot of the a lot of the procedures were uh, were were put in place. But it wasn't until the agency was established in 2007, so uh, three three or so years later, that all of a sudden we have two government national government agencies that, as we we later learned, um, had different ideas about uh, about how things should be done. What have been some of the key issues where the Ministry of Manpower and this new agency, the BNP2TKI, have not seen eye to eye? The, the issue that came up earliest was around the insurance. There's a, there's a special migrant, um, insurance policy for migrant workers. The Ministry of Manpower would set up the rules on what sort of things were claimable, like, like non-payment of wages, compensation for your employment contract being terminated before it expired. Then the, um, the agency was responsible for monitoring claims that were submitted to the insurance companies to see whether they were meeting their obligations. And when they didn't meet their obligations, the, the agency would report this to the Ministry of Manpower with the expectation that the Ministry of Manpower would do something about 
the non-compliance. But these reports didn't uh, necessarily translate to action against the insurance companies, which was frustrating for the new agency. What about beyond the insurance? Have there been other points of contention? Another point of contention between the two agencies was around interacting with agents that sent migrants to work in the Middle East. And a frustrating issue for the, for, the, for the new agency was that a lot of these agents didn't follow procedures. And they didn't follow procedures not just because they had decided not to follow them now, but because for the last 10, 15 years they hadn't been following them, but they'd been granted exceptions by the, by the, by the ministry. And they'd been granted exceptions by the ministry, but they also still had connections with bureaucrats, those who hadn't retired. And because they had a close relationship with the uh, with some of these bureaucrats in the Ministry of Manpower, they would often lobby for for protection from the Ministry of Manpower um, to complain about the uncompromising permission of the of the national agency, or to complain about um, rent-seeking behaviour that was happening in the national agency. This became um, became quite a big issue between the two central government agencies to the point where the new agency reported the issue to the president, asked the president to intervene by encouraging the ministry to uh, to impose a ban on Saudi Arabia. By posing in a ban on Saudi Arabia, it meant that the, that the whole government was able to take a step back and, and get things in order. I guess the implication then is this ban on Indonesian migrant workers going to Saudi Arabia that we saw after Riyadh Binti Sotubi, a migrant worker there, was executed in 2011. Um, although triggered by that execution, actually reflected pre-existing conflict within the government. Hmm. It's, a, it's another example of the government imposing a ban in response to a high-profile event, a trigger. Um, we saw that in 2009 with the, with the ban that was imposed on Malaysia. But actually before that, there was, a, there, there was a conversation happening in the government about whether the ban should be imposed or not. And so when these, when these high-profile events uh, happened, it meant that the people who wanted the bans were able to, to push their agenda. Okay, yeah, that's fascinating. I mean, this new agency has placement and protection in its title. Has it played a strong role in protection of Indonesian migrant workers going abroad? The protection role of the agency has much less scope than the legislators imagined. So what it actually means is that the national agency goes about making sure that Indonesians whose rights in Indonesia have been abused are compensated for those rights. So when, for example, a recruitment agent doesn't deploy somebody on time, um, that the migrant worker is, is then compensated. What the agency also does is it, it has some officials who've been seconded from the Internet, Indonesian National Police, and so they provide security services at points where Indonesians come back uh, in return to Indonesia or when they leave. The kind of protection that Indonesian migrant workers themselves need is protection while they're overseas. And, and the only um, Indonesian government agency that can do that effectively is the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Okay, and how have they been performing on that front? It's, it's definitely doing a lot better now. If we take the example of, uh, of Malaysia in 2006 when uh, the president at the time, SBA, was visiting, he noticed that uh, that service provision to migrant workers was very poor, and one of the things he committed to was was improving that. What we can see in in a lot of other countries is that um, is that the embassies and consulates have set up citizen protection services that don't discriminate migrant workers from other uh, other Indonesian citizens who are living here, who are living or visiting the consulates. Okay, so so the availability of protections is improving to migrant workers and indeed to all citizens then. Yes. 
finally, um, guys, are there any particular trends we should really be keeping an eye on to do with Indonesian migrant workers over, over the next few years? I think the biggest change that we'll see is that there will be an increasing focus on migrant workers coming into Indonesia. The reason why I say that is because more and more when we talk to people in places where, where people have migrated for work, they will say things like the access to education is better, the minimum wage in places like Surabaya and Jakarta is, is comparable to what they could earn in, in Malaysia. The motivation to leave Indonesia is not that great. But what we will what we'll see is that a significant change will be um, that Indonesia, we will start to see Indonesia as a as a as a destination rather than uh, rather than an origin country. That'll uh, that'll be certainly something to keep an eye on. Now, there's a lot I could ask you about that, Wayne, but I'm afraid we're well and truly out of time. It might have to wait till another podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Dave. That was Dr. Wayne Palmer, lecturer in the Department of International Relations at Bina Nusantara University, and author of Indonesia's Overseas Labour Migration Program. 1969 to 2010, published by Brill in 2016. You can find the entire archive of Talking Indonesia episodes at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog on iTunes or via your favourite podcasting app. We'd love also to hear your feedback on any of those channels. Talking Indonesia returns on 14 September with my co-host Dr. Dirk Thompson. Until then, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.